Well, good morning, church, and thank you, Terry. It is so good to be with you on this morning, and I am always thankful for the opportunity to preach God's word to you, and yet I am continually, every time I prepare uh, a sermon, am sobered by the weight of the privilege that is before us today. So, brothers and sisters, will you join me in asking God's help as we come to his word? Father, we pause now not merely out of habit or tradition, but because we believe that unless your spirit opens our hearts to understand your word, we would have no ears to hear or hearts to believe it. Therefore, we ask that the light of Christ's words would expose the dark parts of our hearts so that you may grant us the gift of repentance and bear the fruit of righteousness that you've prepared us all to walk in. Thank you for the grace that covers all our sin and the joy of knowing that we are yours forever. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And all God's people said, amen. Each summer, I am confronted with a fierce and resilient enemy. This formidable foe stares at me when I leave for work in the morning and greets me when I come home in the evening. Each day, he reminds me of my failures of summers gone by and the labor that I must soon undertake. Now, I wish I could ignore this enemy, but if I know if I do, he won't just go away, but he will bring many more of his kind with him. Do you know this enemy, this enemy that I speak of? Of course, I'm talking about the weeds in my flower beds. Now, if your landscaping looks anything like mine, each year these weeds rear their ugly heads, and inevitably, I'll get so tired of them staring at me that I'll find the time and brave the heat to go out and battle this wretched army of weeds. But as you know, anytime you pull weeds, you have a choice of two ways of doing it. You can do it the hard way or the easy way, the right way or the wrong way. The right way, right, would be taking a trowel or a shovel and digging down to the roots and pulling out the weeds. Now, that takes a little bit longer, it's a little bit harder work, or we can do it the fast and easy way, kind of pulling out the tops of the weeds that just stick above the ground. Now, initially, you won't be able to tell which strategy uh, you know, I employed, but a few days later, the quality of my work will soon be exposed. Uh, my wife and my neighbors will all know whether I settled for a quick fix or I got down to the root. Friends, in our passage this morning, Jesus tells us a parable, and a parable that exposes not just the quality of our work, but the quality of our character. Jesus is going to make us all very uncomfortable as he, focuses, as he, as he tells us and focuses uh, to examine the deepest treasure of our hearts and the fruit it produces in the world. And as we enter this uncomfortable exercise of examining our works and what they say about our hearts together this morning, I pray that you would not despair, but that you would be both encouraged by the good work the Spirit of Christ has produced in us, and also that we would be equipped to address the areas of our hearts where Christ is not treasured. 
Again, we do this this morning not to earn our right standing with God, that's already ours in Christ, but in hopes that we might more evidently proclaim the glory of the God who saved us. Uh, we'll take a look at this passage. It's a short passage, uh, but we'll see it in two parts. First, we'll look to understand Jesus' parable of the trees and the treasure in verses 43 and 45. So seek to understand the passage. And then our second point, we'll look to apply Jesus' teaching by looking at our words and our worship. So trees and treasure, words and worship. Let's start with the trees and the treasure. Look at the first verse, verse 43. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. Uh, you can see by the first word in verse 43, that word for, that it is telling us that this passage, this parable, is connected to what Jesus has already been teaching. And just as a side note, anytime you're reading the Bible and you come across words like for, therefore, or in order to that, it's often an important signal to us to make sure that we understand how this passage is connected to the previous passage if we are going to rightly understand what is before us. And if you haven't been with us, or uh, if you have been, just a reminder, over the last few weeks we've been studying Jesus' Sermon on the Plain, and we've seen Jesus call his disciples to pray for their enemies, to be merciful as God has been merciful to them, to give and forgive in great measure. And also, Jesus has warned us against the dangers of judgmentalism, the peril of bad teachers, and the hypocrisy of pointing out other sin while you yourself have sin sticking out of your eye like a four by four. Now, Jesus, in our parable, takes the warning even further by not simply identifying good and bad examples to pursue or to avoid as his disciples, but teaching us that how we treat our enemies, how we forgive, how we judge others is an outward manifestation of a much deeper reality, that our words and our actions actually reveal what is hidden in our hearts. Now, I know there is still some summer left, uh, but I would imagine, uh, like me, that you are all looking forward to the fall season. It is the best season. Uh, and all the activities that come with it. Uh, one of our family's favorite activities is in the fall is going to the cider mill, right? Eat donuts, drink cider, pick apples. Now, imagine with me, you're at the cider mill, and you're walking down this, you know, the nice, uh, the nice row of, of apple trees, and you're looking for the best apples to pick. And the first tree you see, it's got lush green leaves, dense dark bark, a straight trunk with strong branches that look to hold hundreds of huge, red, delicious apples sparkling in the sun. You pull off that apple, you know, it's nice and firm. It's almost hard to, you know, pull off. You take your first bite, it is crisp, it is juicy, and it is sweet. Like, ooh, this is a good tree. But then next to the tree, you see another one. And this tree actually looks kind of similar. It's got full green leaves. It looks to have some strong branches. But as you look closer, there are only a few apples on this tree. And the ones that are visible are small. And they have a faded brown color to them. And when you pull off one of these apples off the tree, it's soft to the touch and squishy, almost coming to parts in your hand. Now, you don't need to be an arborist or have x-ray vision to look inside the trunk of each tree to know which one of these trees is healthy and which tree has something very wrong with it. 
We can do this just by looking at the fruit. Jesus illustrates that the quality of the tree is made evident by its fruit, which we can all kind of understand and easily understand just by observing nature. Yet he goes on to say, look back at our passage, that each tree is known by its own fruit, for figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from a bramble bush. The fruit of a tree is not just telling us if the tree is healthy or sick, but it is telling us about the nature of the tree itself. We don't go to apple orchards and expect to pick oranges. We don't go to orange groves and expect to pick bananas. And we name them apple trees because they produce apples. We name them orange trees because they produce oranges. Jesus is, I think, making the point that you can't separate the fruit the tree produces from the nature of the tree itself. Now, Knowing that Jesus is about to go and use this tree illustration to talk about people and the fruit in our own lives, you may be thinking, as I first did, that Jesus, you're being a little too narrow by setting up only two options, right? Surely there are trees that produce some good fruit and some bad fruit. Does the presence, you know, of any bad fruit make the whole tree bad? Does the presence of any bad fruit in my life make me a bad tree? To understand what Jesus is teaching and the rhetorical device and literary device he is using, we need to understand um, the literary device that he speaks with here. Uh, if you remember last week, Pastor Tommy taught us that parables that Jesus uses in Luke 6 are a little bit different than the long-form parables that we will encounter maybe later in Luke's gospel, uh, like the parable of the prodigal son. In our passage, Jesus is teaching us in Proverbs, which kind of are a type of parable. And Proverbs are meant to be short, memorable, and designed to pack a punch to make the hearer think and consider what is being said. If Jesus were to list all the possible exceptions to the general rule, uh, it would lose its proverbial punch. Therefore, Jesus, uh, I think, is not trying to make a statement about all trees and all their fruit, but rather stating the general principle that we all can understand, the principle that if you look at the quality of the fruit, you can rightly judge the nature and the quality of the tree itself. Now, I think this principle ought to sober us. As Jesus makes it plain that this illustration of the trees and their fruits are meant to be applied to people and their treasure. Look at, look at verse 45. Jesus goes on to say, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Just as the tree produces fruit consistent with its nature, a person will produce fruit consistent with his or her nature. Just as the quality of the hidden parts of the tree are put on display in the fruit, the hidden person of the heart is put on display through our words and actions. Now, if you're not familiar with uh, the scriptures, it's important to understand uh, that the Bible often talks about our hearts, not in reference to the physical organ that pumps blood through our bodies, but as the source of all human thought, affection, and will. Proverbs 4.23 calls the heart the wellspring of life. It is the center and core of who you are as a person. Jesus says here that our hearts are like storehouses or treasuries uh, where we keep all the things that are most precious to us. Think about the things that you think about in the quiet of your own heart. Your deepest desires, your greatest fears, your deepest longings, 
your motivations, they're all stored in your heart. And Jesus makes it clear that what we treasure in our hearts will produce fruit that is consistent with our heart's treasure, whether for good or for evil. Now, uh, oftentimes we try and separate what we do with who we are, don't we? Uh, Maybe you've heard the expression, my mouth sometimes gets me in trouble. Or how many of us have maybe blamed our circumstances or our coworkers or spouses or our children for the things we say or do that we may regret? And these are subtle tactics that we employ, that our heart employs to convince ourselves and maybe try to convince others that our actions do not say something about what's going on in our hearts. Yet Jesus is teaching us that our fruit just doesn't just pop out of nowhere. And no one... um, And no one on the outside can make you produce good or bad fruit. Rather, all of our fruit is cultivated, is nurtured, and fed from the inner person of the heart. The Bible is is consistent with this teaching. I'll I'll just give a few examples of it that kind of brings home the point. In Matthew 15, 19, Jesus says this, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, slander. James 1, 13 and 14, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Or James 4, what causes quarrels, what causes fights among you is not this, that your passions are at war within you. We don't get to claim the good fruit as our own, and blame others or God for the bad fruit. We must own it all and recognize that it is saying something about what is going on in our hearts. Therefore, this parable begs us the question, what does the fruit of your life say about you? And I wonder, when's the last time you took the time to examine the fruit of your life and consider what it says about you? What does it say is your greatest treasure. Maybe you've seen some bad fruit in your life and have tried to get rid of it. But I would ask you, and I wonder, have you done the hard work and got down to the root, or have you simply pulled off the top of the weed only to see its ugly head again coming up later? I know it's, it's never fun to be exposed and thinking about these things are not super fun. I know I'd rather avoid looking at the ugly fruit of my life uh, and what it's producing. Like the weeds growing in my yard, I'd love to avoid them. But we all know that right, ignoring the weeds in our lives don't make them go away. But they grow deeper roots that will be harder to pull later in our lives. The work of examining our hearts is hard and it's humbling but it's also so rewarding when we do it the right way and for the right reasons. So how do we begin to examine the fruit in our lives the right way and with the right motivations? Well, at the end of this passage, Jesus points out that if you want to know what your heart is treasuring, we can first look at the words that come out of our mouths. And that brings us to our second point our words and worship, 
our words in worship. At the end of the passage, Jesus concludes the parable by saying, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Teaching us that our words and hearts, uh, our words and hearts are intricately connected. Therefore, our words will reveal what we worship or treasure. Now, in just a moment, I want us to look at a few, I'm going to get really practical, a few everyday scenarios where our words may reveal what's going on in the treasure trove of our hearts. But before we go on this little treasure hunt, uh, it's important that we have the gospel mindset and motivation before we expose our hearts this morning. It is really easy for us to be really easy to go out on this treasure hunt, and we can end up leaving here in great despair. Um, preachers always are able to do that. I can make you feel real bad about what's going on on earth. But that's not the point. That's not my intention to do that. I don't want you to end up leaving that way. But on the other hand, there's also a danger if we go on this little treasure hunt, and you are puffed up because you start to compare your fruit with others and maybe lead yourself to believe that you are purer than most. That's why this exercise will only be as helpful if we remember the truths of the gospel. And what are the truths that we need to remember? Well, first, we need to remember this, that we must remember that all of us are starting from the same place. All of us have the same problem, the problem of sin. The Bible teaches us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, or in other words, all have produced evil fruit and fall short of God's standard of what is good. We all would rather right, judge ourselves by comparing our fruit to the tree next to us, to our neighbors, to the people's mugshots that we see on the nightly news. But God tells us that He is our standard of good, and we all, no matter who we are or how good your family is or how many A's you've gotten on your report card, all of us are unfathomably separated from God's perfect character. We must remember that. And second, we must remember that the solution to our separation is not through our good works, but because of a gift of grace. Yet many people, maybe some in this room, are trying to do enough good works so that if God were to weigh out our spiritual fruit on his cosmic scales, that he will accept us based on our good fruit outweighing our evil deeds. But friends, the good news of the gospel says that no amount of good works we could produce can make us acceptable to God. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And it's not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For by works of the law, Galatians says, no one will be justified. Since God is a loving God, uh, He did not leave us under the weight of a standard that we could never keep, but instead, He sent His perfect Son, Jesus, to live a perfect life that we all have failed to live. We need to remember, friends, that Jesus is the only one who always produced good fruit, whose heart always fully treasured God and never sinned. Yet though he was perfect, right, he was despised and rejected by those whom he created and offered himself up so that he might die the death our evil deeds deserved. And he did this so that those who once were called evil could be called good. Those who were his enemies could be made his friends. 
not on the basis of their work, but because God credits Jesus' work to all who believe. The problem of our sin requires more than a little effort. It requires more than raising a good family. It requires more than a little church attendance. It required the Son of God to die and to rise again so that by His Spirit we can be given new hearts, hearts that can produce good fruit for God. Friend, if you're here today and, and, you've, uh, and you've worked really hard to try to make up for your evil deeds and trying to balance the cosmic scales to make yourself acceptable to God, I would ask, how many deeds are enough? How many good works do you need to produce? How will you know when it is enough? And can you have assurance that it's enough? I would contend with you this morning that the only way to have insurance that you will be acceptable before a holy God is by receiving the life that Jesus offers you. You don't have to wonder one more day whether God will accept you. For all who trust in the perfect life of Christ have already been accepted on his account. And for those of you who have trusted in Christ, who, who know the grace of Jesus, who have been given a new heart by the Holy Spirit, we need to remember before we go on this little hunt that any good fruit we produce is not from us, but is Christ in us. And when we fail to walk in step with this new heart that God has given us, we need to remind ourselves that there is no condemnation for the rose who are in Christ Jesus. So with all those gospel truths and mindset uh, in mind, I want us now to go on this, this little treasure hunt. Um, not so that we can feel bad about ourselves or puff ourselves up, but so that God will get the glory and that we would find great joy and peace and contentment even in the most difficult of circumstances. All right, I'm going to start us with an easy little scenario, one that maybe you're all very familiar with. Imagine with me you are at a grocery store, and you're in the checkout line, and you see a father and his three-year-old son, and they are putting items, very cute, on the conveyor belts in the store. Then you see a bright rainbow-colored candy has caught the attention of the boy, and he starts to reach for it. He looks at his dad. His dad shakes his head, no. And immediately the boy starts screaming at the top of his lungs, but I want it, but I want it. And he starts to proceed to throw anything that he could find in arm's reach. Now, in that moment, we could blame the grocery store for putting these sweet treats in very precarious situations. Like, come on, guys. Yeah. We could even blame the parent for not previously training the child to not act like this when things don't go his way. But if we are to take seriously Jesus' teaching, we must first examine what the child's screams and cries say about his heart. What does the child treasure? Yes, he may treasure the candy in some way, but ultimately this child treasures himself above anything. He is willing to scream and to disobey his parents in order to get what he wants with no thought to anyone else. His words have exposed that he worships himself. Sure, the child may not be able to put those into that words, but that's exactly what is happening. 
Now, a second example, let's, let's turn our attention to the dad in the story. In response to his son's screaming, you see his face turn beet red. And in that very firm, whispery, yelly dad voice that we dads know, he says to his son, stop it right now. You're causing a scene. When the son continues to cry, we hear his voice get a little louder saying, stop it right now. You're embarrassing me. And when the child does not stop, you see the dad take that rainbow-colored candy and hand it to his son. Now what? <laughs> There's a lot of judging happening right now. This is good. Yeah. Now what has this father's words and actions said about what his heart treasures? His words first might simply indicate a concern for others, right? He is causing a scene. There's a commotion going on. But his second statement indicates that he is not concerned for others, but how he looks in the sight of others. To further make his heart motivation clear to all, he goes against his initial judgment and decides to satisfy his son's sinful desire in order to satisfy his own desire to please others, even if he knows this is not the best decision for his son. Now, please hear me when I say this. I am not passing judgment on all the times that we've given into our children's demands when the eyes are watching. Yes, I know there, uh, a lot of times there are stories, more stories behind every tantrum that we see. But nevertheless, it is important that we take time to examine our hearts and to see what is truly motivating our actions and our words? Do we treasure the opinion of others or our comforts or control so much so that we will sin or hurt others in order to get the thing that we want? A couple more examples for us. Let's consider a biblical one. Uh, the example of the Israelites. Remember in Exodus, they have been freed from slavery in Egypt, saw God do amazing wonders, and shortly after they crossed the Red Sea, what do they begin to do? Grumble and complain. They say, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. What do their words say about what their hearts treasure? Now, we may, might be able to say, well, their God is their belly, uh, in this sense. But I think we can go even deeper than that. They would rather have the security of slavery, what they know, than to trust the God who freed them. They would rather be full and die than be hungry and live under God's reign and rule. They wanted the comforts of home, even if it included slavery. Now, we may scoff at these Israelites' complaints, but... How many of us grumble and complain against God the moment we begin to feel just the slightest bit of discomfort or lack of control? And when we grumble, complain, whether it be about our jobs, about our income, about our schools, or teachers, it's not mere innocent chit-chat, but often reveals a heart that is not trusting in God, but rather seeking to take control from Him. One last one. Let's do a positive one this time. Imagine uh, you recently uh, received the news uh, that a friend 
has been diagnosed with stage four cancer and has only been given a few months to live. You are obviously overcome with sadness and you hurry to go over to her house as soon as you can, but you're not sure exactly what you're going to say in that moment to comfort her. But after you meet and you cry together for some time, you begin to talk together and instead of you having to minister to her, she begins ministering to you. She speaks about how grateful to God she is for your friendship, how thankful she is for your support. Instead of being angry with God, your friend reminds you of how good God is, how faithful he's been to her throughout her life, and that she is praying that her funeral would be an opportunity for her family members who don't know Jesus to hear the gospel and the hope that she has beyond the grave. What do the words of this suffering friend tell you about the treasure of her heart? Her words reveal a heart that treasures Christ and is more concerned about God's glory than maybe even in her own life. She's not asking for pity, but directing us to praise. Praise God for his goodness and his grace, even in suffering. Friends, all these examples that we've uncovered, uh, we see this variety of competing treasures that we have in our hearts, and there are plenty more that we could find. We may treasure respect or reputation, success or significance, love and intimacy. And all these things might not be bad in and of themselves, but when we treasure anything more than Christ and his glory, it no longer becomes a neutral desire of our hearts, but rather what the Bible calls an idol of the heart that is contending for our worship. Anything you desire more than Christ and his glory becomes an idol. Anything you're willing to sin in order to get has likely become an idol in your heart. We can often spot our idols by considering what we worry about most, what we fear most losing, or where maybe we think God has let us down. If God were to give you a wish, what would you wish for? The answer to that question probably reveals what you treasure. Whatever your particular idols may be, they will provide you a temporary comfort, but they will quickly take it back. They will promise you peace, but they will one day deliver pain. They promise freedom, but they will only deliver a bondage, for they are never satisfied. You will never accumulate enough money to satisfy the idol of possessions. You will never get enough compliments to satisfy the idol of praise. And no spouse will be able to satisfy the idol of pleasure. And no one and no thing will ever give you what you were only meant to get from God. Jesus He warns us uh, in other passages, in Matthew 6 especially, about our heart's idols. He says this, No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one or love the other. He will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And you can insert any one of your idols from money in that sense. You cannot serve God and people or their praise. There is not enough room in your heart for God and your idols. 
For God is not okay sharing worship with idols. God is rightfully jealous for our hearts that he ransomed with his precious blood of his son. Therefore, he will often allow difficult circumstances, even suffering in our lives, to reveal hidden idols that need to be removed. Just think about being stuck in traffic that's making you late for a meeting. Right? You are getting squeezed by our circumstances, and what comes out of your mouth is revealing something. Or you face a cancer diagnosis. For those who are in Christ, all these circumstances that we may face that squeeze us, God is using them to expose what we treasure most so that we don't just feel shame, but that he gives us the opportunity to reorient our hearts and our hope in God. So therefore, when we realize that our words are harsh and angry, or you start to notice yourself grumbling or giving over to gossip, that should be a signal to you and to ask yourselves, what is going on in my heart? Not just to stop it. It's good to stop the gossiping, the harsh words. But if we're going to get down to the root, we need to ask ourselves that question. What is going on in my heart? Where did that come from? What am I treasuring that would produce those types of words? And when we identify the idolatry of our hearts before the Lord, he calls us to do what? Confess our sins before the Lord, knowing what? That he that forgiveness is ours already in Christ, and then to turn our hearts to treasure him and to trust in him instead of our idols. Brothers and sisters, it is essential, and I think this is uh, something that we can fall into and I've fallen myself, it's essential that we don't just identify the idol and then just replace it with a new one. Uh, it's, it's very easy to just kind of switch my behavior and, and change the praise of man to something else that also will not satisfy, that is not Christ. True repentance of our idols is taking off the idols and putting on Christ and treasuring Him above all. And when you treasure Christ, He promises to satisfy all our deepest longings and to calm all our deepest fears that we may have. Now, as Pastor Tommy taught us last week, it's much easier, right, to point out the sin in others before we see it in ourselves. And oftentimes, we are blind to our own idols, and we need others to help us rid ourselves of them. Uh, and that is why God saved us to the body of Christ, a group of people who are not competing for personal glory, but are eager to stir one another up to love and good deeds, that we might better represent Christ on earth until he returns. I personally experienced the blessing of this accountability of the body very recently. Now, somebody, if you know me well, somebody who often wears his emotions on his sleeve, my heart's treasure can often easily be exposed by my body language. Now, you can't always tell. So if you see me, you know, with a face on, just ask me. Don't, don't judge. Just come and ask me. And yeah, it may be true or maybe not. Just, all right, with that out of the way. Anyway, a couple weeks ago, uh, I came in for a meeting, very much focused on myself. I had tasks to get done that day. And I wanted control of that day so I could get done what I needed to do. So when something that I thought was getting in the way of my plans to fulfill my list of things that needed to get done, what happened? My words became short, my tone became ungrateful, and my body language made it very clear to everyone present that I was not fully paying attention to what was being said. 
Now, I may never have acknowledged uh, what my words were saying about my heart in that moment if it wasn't for a brother who came up shortly after and gently but graciously called me out for how I was acting. He was giving me the opportunity to examine my words, to ask for forgiveness, and to change my heart's treasure in that day. It has stuck with me for the weeks that has followed. Brothers and sisters, we, we need one another if we're going to be a church that produces good fruit, fruit that lasts and gives God the glory. It may feel like a curse when our words reveal our hearts, but when you're in Christ, it is a grace to have an accurate assessment of where you're at spiritually. And so I wonder, do you have Christians in your life that are willing to gently point out the bad fruit in your life? And just as importantly, do you have Christians in your life who will help you see the good fruit that God has produced through your life? Next week at the congregational meeting, the elders get the joy of testifying to the fruit of the salvation that we see in the new members that we will be voting on for membership. They aren't perfect people, but we've examined their lives, we've heard their testimonies, and we can rejoice in the fruit that God has produced in them and the Holy Spirit fruit we expect to enjoy as they join our fellowship. It is so easy, especially after a sermon like this one, to focus on all the ways that our hearts fail to treasure Christ. That we miss all the good fruit that God is producing in you, through you, and in this church. And we need one another in the body of Christ to encourage us with what God is doing when we cannot see it ourselves and that is, again, one of the reasons why we gather regularly as a church. Um, we've brought this passage up before, but I think it fits well in this context in our passage. Hebrews 10, 24. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. When you gather with God's people, you have the glorious opportunity to stir one another up to love and good works as we wait for the Lord Jesus to return. And I hope that you would just take the time today to find somebody that you know and tell them about the good fruit that you see in their life. Maybe in person, maybe through a, a text. But I don't know about you, but I would want to come to church if I knew that people were out here looking for ways to stir one another up to love and good works. May that be true of us. And praise to God for all the ways I see many of you already doing this as well. Remember, brothers and sisters, as we close, our goal for producing fruit is not to make much of ourselves, make much of Christ. When you are generous and forgiving, you point others to Jesus. When you love your enemies and are patient with those who hurt you, you display a love that is strange to the world, something that only the Spirit could produce. A love that can only be possible through new hearts that Christ has given us by his spirit. I'm going to close by reading another illustration from scripture about two trees. And as, we, as I read it, I want you guys to follow along. Think about what tree you want to be, what kind of person, and ask the Lord to help you be in. Jeremiah 17, 5 through 8. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man who makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert. 
he shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in the uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Brothers and sisters, what kind of fruit are you producing? What does your fruit say about your treasure? May we commit today to know Christ as our greatest treasure, that we may produce fruit for his glory and bless all who would see it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word this morning that reminds us of the grace that we have in Christ. Thank you for giving us new hearts by your spirit that have the ability by your grace to produce fruit that testifies to your saving work in us. Would you forgive us for the many ways that we do not walk in step with the spirit that you've given us? And would you give us eyes to see the idols of our hearts and then give us strength by your spirit to turn from them and to worship Christ alone? Help us, Lord, to be a people full of the spirit, full of love, of joy, of peace, of patience, of kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. May all see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. And all God's people said, amen.